soon as you have to get lawyers involved, it's probably all over. Welcome to the CO Show. I'm Byron Connolly, Editor-in-Chief of CO Australia. And that was Will Sessions, Head of Technology and Innovation at the Australian National Maritime Museum on when IT projects reach the point of no return. Now, we all know too well the many high-profile stories of big technology projects failing to deliver for the client, going way over budget and over time, and sometimes, sadly, both. The public sector here in Australia has seen some spectacular tech failures from the robo-debt debacle, the My Government website crash as Australians who lost their jobs due to COVID-19 looked for a lifeline, and the Queensland health payroll scandal, to name just a few. The private sector has seen its fair share of tech failures too, and typically it's vendors that cop the blame, and often rightly so. Many people see the Australian subsidiaries of global vendors as glorified sales officers and not necessarily innovators. But of course, from the vendor's point of view, some customers can be nightmares to work with too. My first guest is Will, and Will is an experienced senior technology executive who prior to his current role was formerly the CIO at Willow, and before that he held infrastructure, systems and network engineering roles at companies such as Sunrise, George Western Foods and James Hardy. Welcome, Will, to the CIO Show. Hi, Byron. It's really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And great to have you. Now, Will, as head of IT uh, and innovation at the Australian National uh, Maritime Museum, what are the key traits that you look for in a vendor or supplier before your organisation decides to start spending money? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I don't look for, or at least what doesn't come through is the most important thing initially anyway. The name or the size or even, say, the status of the you know, potential vendor, it doesn't really make that much of a difference to me. What really matters is the people who get presented in front of me. Yep. And, and what I mean by that is the culture of what they bring is probably the most important factor, at least in the uh, initial scoping phase. Yeah. Um, probably the best way I can put it is, you know, listening and, and asking reflective questions. And, and it almost sounds like an interview is just so key because it means that they're taking in exactly what it is we do, what 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 the business does, I should say, um, what it is that potentially they're there to do. And I suppose the way I put it is when I started at the Maritime Museum, I have experience in FMCG, as you say, um, technology, yep. consulting. I don't know a thing about maritime. That, that's just. And I, and I said that from the very offset when I started there. But the reason I took the role is because I wanted to, a challenge and to do something different. And I had to get in there and really just absorb myself in the business and understand what it is that these you know guys do on a day-to-day basis. Because it's not just walk in the front door and look around. There's so many things that go on behind the scenes to make this place tick. My role is to understand what they do, mm-hmm. take technology, what can we do to innovate, what do we need for essentially you know, enterprise, real strong enterprise-grade systems and then work with the vendors who can um, deliver solutions in order to present that back to the business. Mm. Um, And I see myself as a a key role of mine is a conduit from what those vendors can provide to what the business really, really requires. That's a tough role Um, too, isn't it? It it is. It really is. I mean, I call it the business. It's a really unique business insofar as, you know, we have – finance and people and culture just like everyone mm. we've got a retail but we've also got a department that just you know they look after ships there's people who you know build deckings and build you know and do joinery and scrub yeah. barnacles off ships it's really quite unique 
So taking all of these things into account is really pivotal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, if you look over the years, I mean, I guess since the 1990s and, and, and the first 20 years of sort of the 21st century, you know, mm. technology projects, particularly large multi-year ones, uh, a lot of them haven't quite delivered what's been planned or in, in worst case scenarios, no. a lot of them have failed, um, which yep. has mean a lot of... Which has meant a lot of wasted money and a lot of wasted time, uh, particularly if it's public money with with government projects mm. and the like. What in your mind is going on here? I mean, what what what's failing? Is it culture? Is it poor people people and project management? Is it having people in the wrong jobs? I don't think there's any ever just one issue that's going on. It's usually a amalgamation of a number of factors. Mm. Um, the most contributing factor has got to be communication and. When I say that, essentially that comes down to project management and, and project scoping. Mm. Cultural fit is obviously also really important. And, and what I mean by that is that you need to have a working relationship with your vendor. The vendor isn't there to just provide a result. I mean, they are, but in order to get that, you have to really sit and work with them and see them as an extension of, of what it is that you're doing. Um, I suppose the way I see it is that a lot of you know, the business will see the technology as a black box. Yeah. One of my roles is to make sure that I can communicate exactly what it is that, you know, we want to do, understand their requirements and then be that conduit, as I say, in between. My role is to make sure that the vendor understands exactly what has to be done, what isn't in scope, where the vision is of where we're going as a business over the next, you know, 3, 6, 12, 24 months and so on and so forth. Yep. And then by that, you build up a narrative as to what it is you want to do. And just kind of what you were saying in the last question, the vendors that I bring on are the ones that seem to really, um, you know, listen, understand, buy in, ask those probing questions about, you know, where are you going? Have you thought about these opportunities? Could we look at doing something in the future in regards to this and then be receptive to, you know, feedback as to how it goes? Mm. Basically, I think it comes down to setting those expectations, being really clear about you know what it is you want to deliver and when, mm. and then obviously the budget that comes on top of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and further to that, what do you feel about international vendors versus local vendors? Do you feel, in terms of the service that is provided, I mean, local vendors are clearly here on the ground and they've got big teams, they do a bit of innovation here in Australia, they've got large sales teams, whereas international vendors tend to just be satellite offices of, say, a big US company, uh, for instance. Do you feel that, Let's, let's say international vendors, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, do you, do you feel that they know enough about the local market that they're operating in? Do you think that they could do a better job on that front? It very much depends on where they're from. Uh, one example is we are looking at a vendor in New Zealand and culturally they're very similar to where we're at, mm. whereas another vendor, and this is for our um, document, sorry, not document, um, our digital management system, mm. there's really only a few that, suitable for the, the sort of, you know, um, artifacts that we're trying to store. And these guys are in the US. Yeah. And what I find is that there's usually an understanding but in, in terms of what it is that we're doing, but we need to build that relationship in terms of our unique requirements. These are the things that we're going to be doing over the next couple of months. Time zones are always a challenge. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's just logistics. Yeah. Um, if we're doing a large-scale implementation on something, if it requires someone to be on site, I, I generally wouldn't accept anything else. I'd say, you know, we have to work into the contract and, and then it comes down to a costing. What does it cost to get someone out here? Yeah. If it's something that can be done remotely, say it's a you know, cloud-only project, it doesn't really phase me because to me it's about delivering the right outcome. Mm. That said, 
the most success I have had is being with Australian vendors because yeah, sure. they're on the ground. Yeah. You get the local, you know, support. You get them in face to face. You know, we're living in crazy times, and you know, Zoom is, you know, I shouldn't say Zoom. You know, any any video communications platform sure. is. It's not the same. And even dealing with one vendor at the moment that's just across the street, we're not actually not allowed to meet anyone at the moment. That's the sure. stipulation. Um, so it's been a challenge. Oh, I can understand that. I just wanted to get on, onto, onto cost. I mean, technology mm. projects have this nasty, have a nasty habit of blowing out on cost. I mean, we saw an example of that with Brisbane City Council on Technology One um, mm. in recent years. They had a legal spat about a cost blowout on, uh, you know, I think it was back in 2017 now. Mm. Projects often take longer than expected. In many cases, you know, this can be dealt with, um, you know, projects going over, over time can be dealt with um, as long as they don't, they don't go too far over. But I guess having to find more money, sometimes significantly more than what was mm. originally quoted, can be devastating for a lot of organisations, particularly those that Absolutely. have tight budgets, right? And they're, they're yep. sort of stuck, aren't they? What's your advice for CIOs trying to avoid this situation? And secondly, what can vendors do too to make sure that, you know, cost blowouts like this don't occur? And we're talking, sometimes we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. On some yeah. Projects. Yeah, and you know, COVID has only just exacerbated the situation. Now I think we're, yeah. we're still going to see a lot of this, um, you know, come to fruition. Um, you know, even a small cost blowout, you might have been able to smooth over. But you know, for us personally, we we just don't have any buffer at the moment, so it's more important than ever. It all links back to making sure you've got those expectations set. I mean, everything I'm speaking about really comes down to communication, culture, expectations getting the right people along for the journey as well. Probably the one of the best pieces of advice I could put here is, you know, say, okay, I'll give you one example. Say you're where we're implementing a new front of house point of sale system. The system we have at the moment is, you know, a number of years old. It has to be replaced. It, it's just not supported, but there's also all sorts of new functionality and, and a lot of data analytics. And we're looking at being able to then tap into CRM. It's all great stuff. I was, brutally clear as to exactly what it is that we're doing. We are putting in some level of new functionality, but the initial replacement project is going to be replacing the system and then enabling it for e-commerce. As soon as we signed on the contract, we got asked, can we look at doing self-service ticketing with giant, you know, six-foot interface type screens? To which the answer is no, we're not yeah. doing that. Yeah. It's only going to, and it, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a rabbit hole in terms of going down that. Scoping it, we did come up with a list of, gosh, it would have been at least four pages of bullet points just in terms of what we wanted or what was um, an absolute necessity. Yeah. We, we, we consulted with front of house, finance, digital, marketing, foundation, there's probably a bunch of others as well, just in terms of what it is you ultimately need. And when we picked the vendor, we were very clear in terms of these are the nice to have, these are the you know, not so important, and these are the absolutely critical. Yeah, we went through the process. We picked we picked a vendor, um, and we implemented it. And I communicated to them that this is something we want to look at doing in the future for things like self service. And we know we can do it, but we're not going to do it right now. Um, it's yeah, just it's a rabbit hole. Yeah. In terms of um, you know. The technology one is, is obviously pretty famous in the industry. My personal thought is as soon as you have to get lawyers involved, it's probably all over, to be honest. Yeah, I'd agree um, with that. You have I'd to work with, with these. Yeah, you have to work with all everyone. And if you have to start talking through a lawyer, I just I just don't think you're ever going to get the result that you really need to. You're going to be yeah. dragging. Everyone's going to be looking over your shoulder. You're going to have to do probity reports. It's just a nightmare. Yeah, the horse is definitely bolted by that stage. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, there's the theory of the uh, what's it, sunken cost. Yeah. You know, once you've invested, that's it. You've got to keep plowing into it. I think sometimes you, if you take a review and it just shows all you've, you've hit that mark, you just have to sometimes call it for what it is. It um, mm. doesn't matter whose fault it is. I mean, if you're just going to keep feeding it, it's just going to be dead money. Mm. Um, you obviously want to be in a situation where you don't get to that stage, but if you do get to that stage, you have to make some tough decisions. Um, mm. And frankly, in my experience, sometimes those tough decisions don't get made and it just gets worse. Yeah, that's um, right. You put in place, again, exactly what it is you need Make sure that you agree on communication tools, whether it be a you know a Jira esque type Scrum or Asana or something like that, so that everyone's on the same page. Mm. Make it very clear as to what it is you want to deliver, and then that's it. It's locked in concrete. Mm. So make the tough decisions early. I guess is what you're saying there. It's only going to get harder if you don't. If you don't, yeah, absolutely. Like life. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so um, a final question, mate. Uh, Now, clearly you don't have to name names, but do you have any horror stories that you'd like to share with us today relating to the rollout, any rollouts that went sour and what the reasons were for that? Any learnings I I think that you, you know, gained from from a horrible experience? You're right, I won't name names. Um, It's a small world. It's a small world, that's exactly right. Don't want to get yourself into too much trouble. (laughs) This is is many years ago. Um, I was, you know, more engineering architecture at that stage. Basically, the best way I can describe it is the vendor that was brought in was trying to solve a problem where they were a square peg and we were a round hole. It just wasn't a mix. It just just weren't the right vendor. And I don't blame them for that. I actually blame outside. The questions weren't asked. it was basically, you know, um, we know someone, we're going to bring them in without actually bringing in the experts, the subject matter experts, and this is what I was alluding to before, bringing in the people who actually know the product, know what it was we were trying to solve, um, and frankly, you know, throwing money at them to try and make this work, it just it just wouldn't do it. Wouldn't the cultural work. fit was, no, the cultural fit wasn't there, collaboration wasn't there, and I don't think there was buy-in from... Um, indirect stakeholders of which they really had to also be brought in. Yeah. So I suppose my advice is, and this is to, you know, you know, my my CIO head of IT Reverend is you have to listen to the vendors and you have to listen to the, the people who you look after and that and the businesses because they know it better than you do yeah. most of the time. Um you need to create a culture of openness that there's never going to be any backlash if someone says, I don't like this or I don't think they're the right vendor. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a situation where, you know, you could hear I told you so. Um, yeah, that's right. But, yeah, it, look, I suppose it's it, it kind of as simple as that. It was just wasn't the right mix. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thanks, mate. We, we'll, we'll leave it there today. I uh, really appreciate you joining us on uh, the CO show and, and hope to have you back again soon. Some great insights. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Byron. Okay, so now I'm going to take this opportunity to give a couple of vendors the right to reply on the issue. On the line, we have Nathan Knight, and Nathan is the Director and General Manager at Lenovo's ANZ Data Centre Group. Nathan is a technology sector veteran who has since the early 2000s has held product management, channel development and other senior roles at vendors Acer and Hewlett-Packard and also global distribution giant Ingram Micro. Nathan, welcome to the CIO Show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you too. Now, Nathan, what in your view are some of the key reasons that technology projects don't deliver on what they have promised? Okay, I think I think the, the first and the most important point is, is understanding where your customer is presently 
and yep. their aspiration in terms of in terms of where where they want to go. I think we've we've got to understand that sometimes our customers have chasm between um, where they presently are and um, their expectations of, of where they need to go. Sure. I think it's it's incumbent on us from a um, from a technology perspective to be very clear and get a very good understanding of what the barriers are in terms of our customers' ability to be able to get get where they where they want to be. And I think that that takes a, a lot of honesty in terms of in terms of addressing some of the gaps that, that we do see from a um, from a customer perspective. Can you talk about what some of the most important steps you take, particularly in the early stages of a customer deployment, whether it's you know your own team or, or, or your resellers and integration partners, to ensure that any existing or potential issues can be dealt with quickly, um, I guess, before you reach the point of no return where you know projects get way over time and budget and you know in the worst cases you know the lawyers start getting involved what do you what's your view on that yeah absolutely i think i think it comes down to people i think you've you've got to you've got to understand that the people that you have in your organization and in your your partner's organization and i think a track record and relevant experience are, yeah. are critical components of that I'd, I'd suggest that um, that past performance is absolutely a strong indicator of, of future performance. So yeah. ensuring that you that you have the people and the skills and the and the capability within within the organisation to be able to to be able to achieve that. We've we've found in a in a number of situations where our business partners have quite a quite an aspirational view in terms of in terms of what they can they can achieve yeah. and. Um, and, and have taken the customer on, on the journey. And then when you start to unpeel that and unpick it, you understand that actually there are, um, there are gaps. And yeah. I think the, the good piece in terms of having strong, mature business partner relationships really allows us to be able to sit down with them and work and understand what we need to do in terms of bridging those gaps. And for, for a global organization like, like Lenovo, you have a, a significant number of people with, with a broad base of skill set that you can that you can tap into yeah for sure for sure now i did want to ask you just lastly i mean clearly you're a you're a huge vendor around the world um you operate in in markets like the united states and china and and europe where populations are a lot larger than they are uh here in australia i mean is your approach how do you approach smaller markets like australia i mean how do you ensure that I guess the customer in Australia that you're dealing with gets the right level of attention. I mean, one of the the comments that CIOs did make um, at times is that they sometimes prefer dealing with locally um, local companies uh, rather than um, the big uh, global multi the, the big multinationals. Um, sometimes they feel they get more attention. I mean, do you do you approach things differently uh, in smaller markets than you do in, in in the larger markets where you have a larger presence? Yeah, I've I've spent I've spent fifteen years working overseas, um, a lot of my time in in the UK and and Europe and and Africa, and um, had had a lot of experience in in large large markets where you have a significant skill set and and a greater depth of uh, capability in in your organisation. I think when I when I look at the Lenovo data centre business, there's real strength in terms of us partnering with with the local players. Yeah. Um, we, we have the, the global capability, we have the global resource, R&D and investment, yeah. and there's, there's real strength and partnership with 
local players. They they understand the, the local idiosyncrasies of the market. They they have they have time in market. So our our key go to market, and we really believe that it's a point of differentiation, is is partnering with local players. Yeah. All right, Nathan. You have a lovely day. Talk to you again sometime on the CEO show. Thank you again. Brilliant. Take Thanks, care. Mate. Thank you very much. Joining us today is Rowan Dollar, who is the CIO at the South Australian Department of Human Services. He's also the former CEO at the Northern Territory Government and former expert in residence for AgTech at the Darwin Innovation Hub. Welcome, Rowan, to the CIO show. Good afternoon, Byron. Now, Rowan, what are some of the key things you look for when you engage a vendor for any project? I mean, what's important to you about what a vendor has to offer apart from the technology? Is it the people and culture, the price, examples of successful rollouts at similar organisations, or is it a bit of all of these things? I think the easy answer to that, Byron, is it's a bit of all of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I'm looking for a vendor that is is easy to work with, um, that has some runs on the board, uh, and is flexible in in their approach and uh, in in dealing with with what uh, could often need to be some flexible requirements as as we go through. Um, we all know that that uh, you know the, the the challenges with with dealing with with some of the really big vendors. Um, for example, you know. Um, you do it our way, you do it our way, you do it our way. Mm. Um, but sometimes that's not flexible enough for us and we need to, to make sure that um, any vendor that we're dealing with is able to be flexible and, I mean, really flexible, not, not just say they are, and uh, that we're not being locked into to any, any platforms or any solutions that are kind of one-size-fits-all because we, we obviously realise that, that one-size-fits-all doesn't. Mm. Um, People and people and culture is really important. There's got to be a good fit there. Um, we need openness and transparency, um, not only between you know my myself as the executive and, and, and an account manager or state director or whatever it happens to be, yeah. but also the project team on the ground. Um, that that open and, and transparent communication is absolutely critical um, to getting stuff done. And uh, you know that's uh, one of the first things that, that breaks when um, you know uh, projects start to go south. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I'd like to get your view on what it's like dealing with tech vendors and, and, and startups as well these days. I mean, in the past State of the CO reports that we have conducted, you know, some of the CIOs rated the service provided by vendors as, as pretty average and often too expensive. I mean, what, what what's your experience? Well, I'm really lucky. I, I've, got, I've got some uh, good experience with some of the big vendors and I've got some good experience with, with some startups as well. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if you spend any time on Google or LinkedIn, you'll see, see where I've been playing with both. And it, it's really, um, you know, again, the key is about uh, relationships um, between the staff and, and my staff. Um, but, you know, I think uh, in many cases saying that the, the, the services offered by some of the big players are, are pretty average has been quite kind. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they are um, average on a good day. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very easy to become a number yeah. Um, you know, you're working. You're you're a, you're a reasonably small customer in the global uh, sphere, working with a satellite office of somewhere that's based in Europe or or in America. Yeah. Um, and they don't get the visibility that they need, and you certainly don't get the visibility you need. The yeah. good vendors have really good relationships with um, with with my team. Yeah. And uh, when we ring, they know who we are. They know that we're ringing because we've got a problem. Um, and that's uh, that's great. It doesn't matter whether they're a startup 
um, or, a, or a major player, um, some of the biggest companies in the world, um, if they really value their customer and really understand the customer experience, don't deal with you as a number, they deal with you as a person with a problem. And, and is that a key reason why you think tech failures keep occurring, that, that perhaps the, the larger vendors don't see you as a big enough customer? The, the, you know, and, and, and you did mention the culture being you know, not, not quite right. Why are the, these, these tech failures occurring and what lessons does the tech sector need to, to learn, I guess, from these failures? I think, um, I think the short answer is, I could probably write a PhD thesis on this. Um, I think uh, the short answer is, is that the tech sector uh, needs to learn, and that's on both sides of the fence, whether that be vendors or, or on the customer side. Um, you need to learn from other people's mistakes, and uh, there is too little of that done. Um, what I would say is that in, in my experience, most projects fail for one of two reasons. Either requirements are not clearly understood, um, and that again is on both sides of the fence. So we're asking, you know, I, I remember reading in, in, in a national newspaper about, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, they were talking about outsourcing at the time, and they said that the customer is looking for a piece of fruit. The vendor decided they were going to deliver a piece of fruit. One was delivering an apple and the other one was asking for a slice of orange. They were both getting a piece of fruit, but it was completely different. The, the expectations were completely um, different. So um, I think there's still that problem in the industry. Um, I think communication is key. I talked about openness and transparency and communication there um, earlier. Mm. I think um, vendors need to be prepared, uh, regardless of whether they're a startup or, a, or a, you know, a global player. They need to be prepared to invest in the client. And I don't mean by, by pouring money in, but, but putting time and, and understanding the relationship and understanding my business when you want to do business and deliver projects for me. Understand what my drivers are. Understand what the, the key strategy is for my department. And then success will follow because you might see us going down a track and uh, your experience as a vendor in your, your vertical says, hey, hang on, that's not a really good idea. You want to go this way because we've seen, you know, the, the alligators are over on that, on that side of the marsh. You want to go around this way. Yeah. Um, and that, and you, that kind of thought leadership is, 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 is essential as well. And you feel you're not seeing enough of that? They don't understand enough about um, what it is that you do and, and your organisation? I mean, would that be your, your key piece of advice for them? Absolutely. Um, look, I've got I've got some vendors, uh, a couple of startups that are, that really understand my business. Um, I've got a, 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 a global player who really has invested and really understands my business. But there's other big vendors who just don't understand what we're trying to do. Um, they don't know, um, you know, most of the people in my team, um, and then they're just not prepared to, to invest in those relationships. They think that by responding to a tender. Um, or an RFP, but that's just enough. Um, mm. And unfortunately, I guess um, for, for many, many on many occasions, I've sat on the vendor side of the fence. Yeah. So I read, I read through the you know the BS that's put in the in the documentation. Yeah. Um, I see that. I, I, I know you know. I, I know that it's it, you know they're only quoting eighty, but it's going to end up being one hundred and twenty because that's just what they're banking on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, mate. That's, there's some great advice, and I'd like to thank you for for being part of the CIO show and today and, and, and giving us your insights. Thank you very much, mate. No problem, Warren. Cheers. Okay, my next guest is Tim Sheedy, and Tim is a technology industry analyst with 25 years' experience, and he's currently the principal advisor at Ecosystem. Tim, welcome to the CIO show. Thanks, Byron. Now, Tim, you've been around vendors and senior tech execs in the private and public sectors for many years now. I mean, what, in your view, are some of the key reasons that tech projects 
don't necessarily deliver what they uh, have promised? Look, there are, there, there are so many reasons, right? And, and I guess, you know, it's w- worth recognising that it's not just tech projects that fail. Like, you know, a, a lot of projects and businesses fail. It's not just when you have an external company doing something that they fail. A lot of internal projects fail too. Yeah. But look, you know, but, but, you know, the IT industry does have a reputation of a, you know, a higher failure rate than really should be acceptable. And, and there are really lots of reasons for it. It's, you know, uh, the wrong expectations for the, from the business. So you can say it's over expectations, but um, often it's just the wrong expectations or changing expectations. But, you know, the, let's just look at the last five, 10 years. Markets have moved so quickly. And if you're doing a, you know, two, three-year IT project, yep. those initial plans that you put in place two or three years ago, you know, they're, they're just so far out of date. Like I remember speaking to an organization who, you know, just before the iPhone launch, um, set their five-year digital strategy that had no mobile in it, mm. right? And so they bought in and an IT consultancy to help them with that, with this five-year plan in place, got five years down the track and didn't have any mobile site. And this is a, a, a relatively large Australian retailer who would all recognize. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I think that's part of it. I think sourcing teams sometimes are to blame, mm. right? You, you often see a sourcing team come in and, feel that their job is to squeeze that vendor dry, basically, and to, to get it, you know, every single cent of value out of it yeah. uh, to the point that the vendor themselves start to back off. They start to go, well, we're no longer making margin out of this project. Let's take our A team off and put our B team or our, our C yeah. team yeah. Um, on, on this initiative. Um, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, the, the wrong technology was proposed for the outcome. Yeah. You know, I, I think that does happen too. Um you know, I, I guess much less today than maybe it did um, four or five years ago. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it's just the wrong people in the roles. And you know, I think a lot of the time it's just the wrong cultural match between the provider um, of the service who's actually building it yeah. and, and the company who actually wants it. You know, and like I remember a number of years ago, there was all this talk around value-based outcomes and projects, right, that, you know, how about we give our IT services provider a percentage of the profit that we make from this new initiative? And that was all sort of a great idea, but it all, you know, fell over when it got to the legal teams and sorting teams and accounting teams. And if we're not going to give them any skin in the game, right, then, you know, then we have to be really careful how we manage all those KPIs that, we, that, that we're measuring them on. We can't manage them on something that we're not letting them control. Yes. Right, so if we're doing this IT project to... You know, lift, you know, uplift the, the usage of this product by 20%. We can't give them that target unless, you know, they, they have some control over the ability to hit that target, Yeah. right? And so I think that there, there's often, as I said, so this project was done to get this 20% uplift and then we bought in a provider and paid them by time and material, Yeah. right? And so they didn't have any skin in the game. They did what they were asked to do. And sometimes what you're asked to do and what you need to do are, Two completely different things. Mm, that's exactly true, and I, I definitely agree with you on the cultural aspect there. I think that you know, oftentimes people are in the wrong jobs, and oftentimes the culture between the the vendor and their um, their customer just don't quite fit. And I guess that's a recipe for disaster. Now, I mean, as an analyst, what do you think are the most important steps suppliers and their customers need to take, particularly in the early stages of a, of a deployment? to ensure that any existing or potential issues can be dealt with quickly before you reach the point of no return. And when I say that, I'm saying 
you know, the project goes way over time and over budget. And in the worst cases, and we do, we have seen some examples of that, uh, lawyers getting involved. And I would assume that you would agree with me on this, that when the lawyers do come in, become involved, it's probably too late, mate. The horse is probably bolted by <laughs> yeah. that stage. Yeah, what do you it. think? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, if there if there are lawyers, then um, then things have already gone wrong, and, and often you know uh, can't be brought back on track, right? That's true. Um, but look, in, in terms of what I've seen recently, the best practice um uh, around how to sort of set a project up to succeed is um speaking to a sort of mid-sized ERP provider, and uh, they were uh, implementing you know a a whole new ERP for an Australian organisation, and and they actually went in with a plan of we will take on your culture. We will become part of your team, part of your business. We will look and feel like you do. You know, we'll, you know this was actually a, an Indian offshore uh, provider, um, but you know, they sent people onshore. They lived in the local areas. You know, they commuted to work with the, you know, with, with these colleagues. And you know, they, to, and you know, to, in, in the end, they, they were getting invited to Christmas parties and you know, in, drinks after work, etc. Too. But this idea of we're not going to come and push our culture onto you, right? We're going to come in and, you know, what are your values as an organization? Our team will take on those values and deliver in that way and, and sort of be that seamless part of that delivery machine. Mm-hmm. And that project just went swimmingly well. Yeah. Right? You know, they was an ERP that, you know, when, when the switchover happened, no one even noticed. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and, and everyone went home at five o'clock, right? Like that never happens, right? Um, Mm. for an ERP switchover. So, you know, I think that recognition and like I can think of another, you know, South Australian government organisation that um, took on a similar sort of approach where they were using a, again, it was actually a different Indian outsourcer um, who had a big onshore presence and this big onshore presence actually set up within their offices. Yeah. Right? They actually set up in their office. Like it wasn't even a you have to walk across town or, or, or call another centre. You know, it was literally, you know, uh, you know, a, a ten meter walk away. Yeah. Um. And again, they they took on that that sort of approaching culture, and that's you know, you you just can't replace that, mm. right? You, you you know, versus the approach of an organisation that comes in and says, this is the way we're going to do things. You know, immediately you start getting pushback from your internal teams that they rub up the wrong way or that that are measured differently, different KPIs, etc. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, like those two examples, I guess, are, you know, sort of shine the light on the approach I think organisations need to take. But, like, you know, if we're trying to deliver a business outcome, then, yes, this is a partnership. Yeah, Look, right. if, we, if we just want someone to come in and implement something, sure, pay time and materials or give them a, a fixed price contract and let them do it if it's a simple, easily repeatable thing, you know, there's there's no need to to, to overcomplicate those sorts of deals. Mm. But but when it's your business at stake and your you know customer relationships, then then absolutely you 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 know you, you've got to think about this as a partnership. Yeah, for sure, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I wanted to to ask you now about international vendors versus um, local vendors or Australian vendors. I mean, some some execs view. Know, Australian subsidiaries of global technology vendors is essentially the sales offices and, and not necessarily um, innovators. And in some cases, they do prefer to deal with local suppliers who have the feet on the ground. They feel like they're getting more likely to get atten- attention that they need from a local vendor. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do, do you think they're right in feeling that way or, or not? Yeah, look, I think there probably is some truth in, in that. And 
Well, again, coming back to this idea that it's a cultural match, right? That, um, you know, that, that this organisation is, you know, helping you deliver some sort of, you know, um, business goal or customer goal and, you know, they're going to be in your business for a while. So you want someone who you get on with, you relate to, an, an organisation that you feel has, you know, similar sorts of values to yours, for example. Well, if you're a small Australian organisation, I'd probably tell you, you know, not to even consider the big global ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless you're a small Australian organisation with big global ambitions and they can help you get to that, sure. right? So, so, so there is, you know, again, we're, but if you're just a small Australian organisation who just wants to become a mid-sized Australian organisation, then, you know, I, I think you'd be mad to, uh, to, to bring in one of the big guys. And look, I've, look, I've been tracking these IT services providers for years. In one of my previous firms, you know, did a lot of sort of the competitive dynamics between them and market share, et cetera. And, and it was interesting, even all the way back then, I always looked at this and went, you know what, this market, it's not as competitive as we really think it is. True. I reckon nine out of 10 times when a customer describes the sort of business they are and the sort of outcome they're looking for, I could have told them who they were going to pick before they even went to market. Right, because you know there, there will be that cultural match, right? As someone who, you know, you're you're a local MD um, of a you know 500 person organisation, you're a private company, um, you know, you still walk the floor and, and check out everyone, you know, daily and like like yeah, have pride in what you're delivering. Then you probably are going to take that sort of one stroke to choke approach, right? That you know I, I need an organisation who's probably similar size who will come in and support me in the same sort of way that I support my business. Right, um, you know, versus you know some you know multinational where with executives overseas, and I never really get to speak to the person who who's making the decisions for my deal. So, and and even and I even think there is sometimes a recognition that you do that, you might not get the same team, right? You might get a local team that maybe isn't as good or as polished, and probably doesn't have as much industry experience, and definitely doesn't have as much global experience. Sure. Um, in terms of bringing best practice, but that's okay. You're okay to give that up because you know of the benefits that you're getting. So, so yeah. Look, I, I think there is some truth in this idea that you know that sometimes the big global ones aren't aren't the right match, and the and the small local ones are. But you know, the the the, the opposite could be said. If you're a big global organisation sitting in Australia, you're probably going to go for a big global SI too, yeah, right? Um, because right. there's just that that sort of match. Yeah. As I said, I, you know, and again, bringing back to this cultural thing that people are looking for, you know, a partner, someone who they trust to deliver this. And that trust is the most important thing because I can guarantee you that if you're a CIO and you've got some RFP, an RFP out in the market, you'll get five responses and every one of those responses will tell you that they can deliver it, mm. right? So the ability to, to deliver isn't under question, mm. right? It's the, you know, it's a, will this, do I trust this company to deliver? Right, and that's yeah. that's hard to, you know, sometimes that's hard to measure. It's hard to put in a contract. It is, yeah. Until um, you get until you get to the to the stage where it really matters, right? Yeah, exactly yeah, right. Absolutely. But uh, well, I think more and more we're getting better at this. I think you know the, but put it this way, I see less talk in the market about IT failures today yep. than five years ago, and definitely more than yeah, you know, less than ten years ago. So I, I think we're getting better at it, but you know, there, there's a long way to go still, and. Um, perhaps an, an, a growing recognition that small failure is okay and testing experimentation is okay. Yeah. Um, let's just maybe get rid of, <laughs> rid of some of these uh, yeah, billion-dollar failures. 
than yeah. $100 million nowhere from the market. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. And, and hopefully things keep improving. Listen, Tim, thank you very much for, for spending uh, time with us today here on the CO Show. I mean, there's there's obviously some a lot of things in there that you spoke about that, that vendors and, and CIOs and other senior tech execs need to think about when they're, uh, when they're working together in the future. So thank you very much, and we hope to see you again soon. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Now, Atlassian uh, is perhaps Australia's best technology success story. The company's software development and collaboration tools are used by thousands of teams at companies all over the world. My next guest is Cameron Deitch, who, is for, who, who for the past six months has been Atlassian's Chief Revenue Officer. He's been with the company since 2012 when he joined as Director of Ad- Advocacy before moving into various roles such as Head of Growth and Online Sales, Head of Server and Enterprise Marketing, Head of Corporate Development and uh, Head of Server Business. Prior to Atlassian, Cameron worked at Jive Software and BEA Systems. Welcome, Cameron, to the CIO Show. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Now, Cameron, first question, what in your view are some of the key reasons that technology projects, I guess large and small, uh, don't necessarily deliver what they've promised? Um, uh, well, that's, that's a pretty broad question, uh, and it would depend on the projects themselves. Um, I'll, I'll start with the blanket answer there, is that technology projects, especially in business, are exceedingly complex. Uh, the... You know, it, entire industries, actually what Atlassian is one of our core things we help, you know, technology teams and technology companies do is manage projects more efficiently. Um, and the reality is it's like, you know, building, maintaining, running software is a super complex process. Um, and it only gets more complex with scale like, at an infinite basis. The, but that's only one piece of it. Like I think the complexity can be managed. We have very smart development teams and very smart development organizations. The next big piece is, you know, the alignment between what is expected by, quote, the business, right? In a, in a yeah. traditional world where you have a business team trying to create an experience of, or add value to customers or internal users. And then you have the technology team that needs to deliver that largely sitting in another room or another office or another building or another country. Mm. And, and the communication and miscommunication or lack of expectations or scope creep and changes as projects happen, also leads to kind of this, you know, terminal challenge that, you know, projects get delayed or fail or never deliver upon what they originally expected. Yeah, absolutely. And I I totally agree with that. Now, Atlassian is indeed a big name in the tech sector these days globally. I mean, tell me some about some of the steps that you take, particularly in the early stages of a customer deployment, um, to ensure that any existing or potential issues can be dealt with quickly before, I guess, you reach the the point of no return. <laughs> um, well, that's one unique thing about Atlassian and how we've always thought, always thought about how we build our products, how our products are purchased by our customers and how they're used. And it mm-hmm. all largely starts with, you know, Atlassian, usually when we first talk to a customer, like actually get them on the phone, they're already successful users of our products. Yeah. Um, the reality is, you know, a, a fundamental part of our strategy is, you know, Start with teams, start with small groups of people, make them more efficient. And as they become efficient, they'll tell other teams about our products and they'll start spreading it across the organization. And all of a sudden we look around and a CIO might realize, you know, with no decision of their own, that all of a sudden all the work that they are doing in their business, or at least in their technology teams, is happening in JIRA and being documented in Confluence. These are both Atlassian products. And 
um, which is, I think, the more organic way that technology can be used is let the teams adopt and, and let the success of the products be the reason why companies standardize on them, which is somewhat different from, and it's harder, like Atlassian products have that benefit. You can use it with five people, you can use it with 500. That's different than, say, like a CRM implementation where largely it's kind of an all or nothing top-down choice. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one unique thing with Atlassian. That said, we look at a ton of data for our customers. So we know as customers from the first day they log in, you know, what activities are required where we know that they'll be a healthy customer and successful or what activities that, you know, potentially they're going down the wrong path. And then we will try and remediate that either through smart and product experiences, sending them advice and emails on how to properly use their products. Or in some cases, we'll actually engage with our customer success team where someone will get that customer on the phone and say, hey, listen, we, we, we see how you're using our products and you know, you're, we, we'd recommend actually going down this path. You will be successful in the end. So yep. the, the idea there is to yep. get them successful before they go off the rails. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, some people do view Australian subsidiaries of, of global tech vendors essentially as, as sales offices, and in some cases that's true, um, and not necessarily innovators. I mean, Atlassian is clearly not one of those. You know, initially, you know, all the innovation happened in Australia, which is fantastic mm-hmm. from our perspective. But does this help when you're dealing with local customers? Do you think that that essentially provides an advantage? Yeah, it's the uh, so. Uh, yes, you can tell I'm American American accent, but I have plenty of teams in Australia. Actually, when the company was growing, obviously we hired a bunch of people, you know, college graduates from uni, and you know, and it's a pretty tight network of people. And obviously, we're a major hire of, of technology grads, um, yeah. but also we also tried to hire some of the best from the local banks and local telcos and local you, you name it. So you know, many of the people working at Atlassian, you know, had worked at some of these who are our largest customers. Uh, yeah. in in Australia. Yeah. Uh, so of course they know people, right? It's like, and for all intents and purposes, it's a community, right? So, mm. you know, our founders are very much in Sydney and Australian based, you know, based and, you know, they have dinners with CIOs and friends who work in all these large companies. So just, you know, we, we're, we're intrinsically linked to all those big companies just due to the size of Australia itself and obviously Alaskan's position in the global market. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Cameron, thank you very much. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and and hopefully we'll chat to you again sometime. Thank you so much. Have a good day. day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CIO Show. We hope you enjoyed it. In our next episode, myself and CIO Associate Editor David Binning will look back on the past four years of the CIO 50, a program that has clearly established itself as the premier awards program for senior tech leaders in Australia. Entries are open for the fifth CIO 50, which is announced in November. We chat with past winners and finalists about what the awards meant to them and their teams and discuss what we think will separate the best from the rest in this most challenging of years for technology leaders and their businesses. Hope to see you next time. Bye for now.